recording device is also called a palm these days. All right, so Matthew chapter 12 and verse 43 says, When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest, and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return unto my house from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. While he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. And he answered and said unto him, him that told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples, and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father, which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. So as that last section from verse 46 down seems kind of disconnected from the, from the other passage, but I, I'm going to try to connect the, the idea that's presented in it together with it. Hopefully that'll work today. But as we have been looking through this, and it's interesting that this um, part where I just started reading in verse 43, there is no break between that and the previous verses. Jesus is just speaking through, and it, it really doesn't appear to be connected um, even in the in the concepts that are being talked about, but I believe it is connected, and I believe it's connected all the way through um, this entire confrontation and discussion that's been going on. And again, I just as a reminder, we got through this point where um, Jesus was being accused of casting out devils through the power of Satan. But when Jesus answered that, and I didn't really look at this thought as we went through there, um, back in verse 27, Jesus says, And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? He says, Therefore, they shall be your judges. And Jesus' answer in that, in that sentence, the assumption is, is that these children, the children of the scribes and the Pharisees, are able to cast out devils. They are actually doing the same thing in, in, in some sense or another. But the idea that it is possible for people to cast devils out of other people. And so they're questioning Jesus doing this Whereas they themselves seem to have been practicing this in some way or another as well. And so Jesus just brings up the question, like, if 
how do you, how do your children do this? How is it possible for them to do this? Could they possibly use Satan to cast out devils? Or is that the source of their power to do this? And I think the obvious answer is, and Jesus makes it clear, the obvious answer is no, that it is only through the power of God that devils are going to be cast out of anybody. But as we get into this section here, and he had quite this quite a conversation in between that point and where we get to today in verse 43. But he starts talking about unclean spirits. That's where we started in this whole conversation is the casting out of devils. And so he's come around to that point again. And he says, when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and finding none. Then he saith, I will return into my host from whence I came. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then he goeth and taketh with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. And he ends that, verse 45, says, Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. But he has this description of having a devil cast out of somebody and it leaves but it's wandering it's looking for a new home it says it walketh through dry places seeking rest and i don't know if this is a maybe a stretch is it looking for some it says dry places seeking rest is it looking for a, a moist body to dwell in perhaps um, you think back to the the story that we read a few chapters ago and Jesus cast this legion of devils out of this man and they when they left or just before they left they asked for permission to go into the pigs that were in the field next nearby they wanted to be in a body and so I don't know if that's specifically what he's saying here, but that seems to be the case, that they are looking for a place to be, a body to dwell in. And it seems in, in Scripture that it is that's where they have power over people, is by being in a body. And so it gets cast out, and as it wanders around, and this evil spirit doesn't find somewhere else another body to inhabit it comes back to see the condition of the person that it was cast out of and the description here is it says I will return to my house and from whence I came out and when he cometh he findeth it empty swept and garnished That house is empty. <laughs> the host, that body, that person, hasn't replaced that space in them that this devil was residing in. It's empty, swept, and garnished. It's all cleaned up, right? Ready for someone to inhabit. And there's nobody there. And so this spirit goes and finds seven others. I guess in his wandering, he came across others that are looking for a place to live. And 
they all get together and come and join together into this person. And it says the last state of that man is worse than the first. If we try to make a, an application to something in our own lives, when we look at this passage, and I, I would believe that this is a, a literal description of the spiritual world and the evil spirits that are trying to um, work in our world and working in people. And I'm sure this is a literal description that Jesus is giving, but he also has a lesson outside of that that he's teaching. And we see that as his last sentence in verse 45. It says, Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. Not that they're all going to have multiple devils come in after they've had one cast out, but that the last state of them is going to be worse than the beginning. And the way I see the taking place here is these scribes and Pharisees that Jesus is talking to and dealing with are people who are trying to follow the law. They're very strict in their observance of the Old Testament law. But they're trying to do it in their own power, in their own, by their own will. They're trying to fulfill the law. And in doing that, they're not truly worshiping God. They're not truly honoring God in what they're doing because they're trying to take the credit for what they're doing. And so it's like when you start off and you have a desire, if you look at a Christian or a new believer, is like the beginning here in verse 43, the unclean spirit has gone under the man because he's believed. But as time goes on, and life changes when you trust in Christ. Your life is going to change if you truly believe. But the issue comes is when we're trying to live that life by our own power. If we ignore the Holy Spirit and we just try to clean up our life in our own strength, if we try to get rid of all of our sin, all of our bad habits, through a 12-step program and all these different techniques that people come up with of cleaning up their life, but we leave God out of that and we're trying to do it in our own strength. We can clean up that room, right? That space where that evil used to dwell. We clean it out. We sweep it and garnish it. We put the vase with the flower in that corner and it's a cleaned up space, right? We think that because we're trying, we're cleaning up the sin in our lives. We're getting rid of those bad habits that we used to do. We may look at Galatians in a, in a few minutes as that was what that church was doing was they began in the spirit. They began in faith, trusting Christ, but they carried on in their own strength, trying to fulfill the law in their own power. 
as if their salvation depended on their actions and what they did from that moment forward. And we can get hung up in that feeling that it's up to me to live up to God's standards, to maintain my position with him. And that's certainly not the case. And what we can see happens in so many people's lives. We were um, at a prayer time this week and we were just talking about a gentleman who just recently passed away that these people knew and this was literally his story was he got saved. Um, he had been a, an alcoholic up to that point in his life and he put aside drinking and he was a light in that community for a number of years he was diligent and just on fire serving God spreading the gospel witnessing to his friends and family and the people in the community he was always there and doing those things he's like this man <laughs> But as time went on, somebody told him that there's no harm in having a social drink here and there. There's no harm in having a drink with your meal. And when he believed that person, when he gave in to that temptation that first time, when he took that drink one more time, he couldn't let go of that drink. He had cast out the one <laughs> devil in his life when he got saved. And he started trying to live under his own power, under his own strength. And in the end, when he started to give in to that temptation, when it was his own strength trying to do it, the end of him was worse than the beginning. And what killed him, he literally drank himself to death in the last few years of his life. It was literally drinking that killed him. It was like seven other spirits came in to where that one had been. Where it was a bad before, it was seven times worse at the end of his life. Because he gave up trusting in God for that. He started to live under his own strength, and he could not do it. And when he started to give in, it turned worse than it ever was. And I don't know if anybody's experienced that. Sometimes it seems like the harder we try to resist temptation, the stronger that temptation gets. And I know I've talked to different people on different topics of that, and that really seems to be the case. When, I, when I'm trying in my own flesh to overpower these temptations that I face, that flesh just wants it more and more and more. And I can't overpower. Like that temptation is taking over every thought in your life at that point. And somehow we need to release that, let go of our me in my flesh trying to overcome and begin to let God do that. I'm just going to turn to an example in the Old Testament. This is not exactly a perfect match to what this passage is, but I just 
I think it's a good picture for us as Christians. Um, if you want to turn with me, I'm going to go to the Second Kings. Um, Second Kings chapter 18 to start here. I was thinking we need to spend more time in our Old Testament. It's the Old Testament was given to us. All these stories, all these people, it's there as an illustration for the things that God is trying to teach us in our lives. And here we come to, and we we try to give current illustrations from our own lives or, or current events from the world, but that's actually what God gave us the whole Bible for was we have the perfect illustration for everything we need sitting here right in front of us. And so I just want to look at um, it's King Hezekiah and I'm just going to give the introduction here in, in chapter 18. So Second Kings chapter 18 I'm just going to re read the first eight verses to get the introduction to him. It says, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty and five years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. He removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it. And he called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah nor any that were before him. For he clave to the Lord, and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him, and he prospered whithersoever he went forth. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria, and served him not. He smote the Philistines, even unto Gaza, and the borders thereof, from the tower of the watchmen to the fenced city. Now this description of Hezekiah is a very uplifting description of who he was and the godly man that he was. He served God throughout his reign as king, um, is how this is described. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. He broke down all the areas that were used for idolatry. He destroyed this the brass serpent that Moses had made and that the people had worshipped this it turned it into an idol it wasn't intended to be an idol like that at all and so he destroyed that thing and it says he trusted the God of Israel he lived a good you know if, if this was New Testament church age time he was a good Christian man he lived a good Christian life and he trusted in God and he honored God in his life and if you turn over to chapter 20 
I'm going to read um, a fair bit of, of this just to get the, the story of, of what took place here. So, um, chapter 20, and yeah, I'll just start reading at the beginning here. So, it says, in, the, in those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. This was later in his life, obviously. And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall, and he prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth, and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. And it came to pass, before Isaiah was gone out into the middle court, that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Turn again, and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, thus saith the Lord, the God of David, thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee. On the third day thou shalt go up unto the house of the Lord, and I will add unto thy days fifteen years, and I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for mine own sake, and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, Take a lump of figs, and they took and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. And Hezekiah said unto Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up into the house of the Lord the third day? And Isaiah said, This sign shall the have of the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten degrees or go back ten degrees? And Hezekiah answered, It is a light thing for the shadow to go down ten degrees. Nay, but let the shadow return backwards ten degrees. And Isaiah the prophet cried unto the Lord, and he brought the shadow ten degrees backwards, by which it had gone down in the dial of Ahaz. Now, this is an interesting story um, so Hezekiah gets sick and he's going to die and Isaiah gets a message from God to go and tell Hezekiah that yes you are indeed going to die from this sickness and so Hezekiah prays to God and he he says, I beseech thee, Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth with a perfect heart. And this was true. This is the description that God gives of Hezekiah. It's not that he's lifting himself up beyond what he actually did. This, is, this was his testimony. I've done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. And so Hezekiah prays, and then God stops Isaiah. Isaiah is leaving to go home. And God stops him and sends him back to tell Hezekiah that I've heard your prayer. I'm going to answer that prayer. And I'm going to give you 15 more years of life. And he says, in three days, you're going to go into the temple. Now, what I find really interesting is that Hezekiah 
in verse 8, it says unto Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I'll go into the house of the Lord on the third day? Remember what Jesus said as he answered the scribes and Pharisees? In verse 38 of Matthew 12, it says, Then certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. Now this isn't the description, evil and adulterous, <laughs> doesn't describe how the Bible describes Hezekiah. But I think there's a connection there that can be made. Why is Hezekiah asking for a sign? Why does he need something miraculous that for him to believe that God's actually going to heal him? Why can't he just believe it? And that's an odd thing to me. For a man who has lived this godly life, this godly character, honoring God in everything he's done up until that point, is now asking for a sign to prove it. And God amazes me sometimes when he does what some of these people in the Old Testament ask him to do. When they're asking for a sign, he often gave them a sign. And he even was given an option of what the sign was going to be. Are you going to, do you want the sundial, the shadow in the sundial to drop 10 degrees or to go back 10 degrees? And he says, well, it's, nothing for it to go down 10 degrees. That's what it's going to do anyway. But he says, let it go back 10 degrees. And I know people have made a big deal of this. And I, I haven't looked at the details or, or watched any of the articles on it, but people have tried to prove that this actually happened, that time went backwards 10 degrees on a, on a sundial at some, this point in history. And well, of course it, in some way or another, it did, because God said that it did. But God gave Hezekiah this very miraculous sign that what he said was going to happen. But my question is, why did it take that for Hezekiah to believe it? Why wouldn't he just believe God? Remember when... God promised Abraham that he was going to have a son. The Bible says that he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Without some miraculous sign to back up the promise, Abraham just believed God. And that's what God wants from us in our lives, is to just believe him, not demand something miraculous to prove that what God says is true. Just believe God and that's what's going to count for righteousness. Now, we could continue reading the story here. I'm just going to go to Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 32, it says something just a little different than, than what it gets said in 2 Kings just to save us some, some time and, and searching there. So Second Chronicles chapter 32 and verse 22. 
says, Thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all other, and guided them on every side. And this is kind of the time leading up to this event. And it says, And many brought gifts unto the Lord to Jerusalem and presents to Hezekiah the king of Judah, so that he was magnified in the sight of all nations from thenceforth. Verse 24, In those days Hezekiah was sick to death, and prayed unto the Lord, and he spake unto him, and he gave him a sign. But Hezekiah rendered not again, according to the benefit done unto him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore there was wrath upon him, and upon Judah and Jerusalem. Hezekiah was lifted up with pride at this point. When he was healed, at that point in his life, he was a well-respected man because of all that he had accomplished, because of all that God had done for Israel, because of him serving God properly, God blessed the land. But the people exalted Hezekiah because of that. And when God healed him, it was almost like Hezekiah felt like he deserved it. And he, instead of honoring God in that at that time, he lifted up his own self. And bad things started to happen at that point. And that just kind of reminds me of this verse, these verses in Matthew chapter 12 of when we start to get cleaned up and if we start to have some pride that somehow I have accomplished this, I've cleaned up my life, I've accomplished this thing, I am living righteous. As soon as we start to get lifted up with pride, as soon as we start to credit anything of our goodness, anything of our salvation to ourselves, we're putting ourselves in a dangerous spot. We're going against what the Bible teaches. And in the end of that passage, Jesus describes, you know, the end of that man that where seven other spirits came in and the end of him was worse than the first. He ends up with the sentence, even so shall it be, even so shall it be, also unto this wicked generation. The people who were living according to the law, who were living a good, clean life, the end of them was going to be worse than if they hadn't been doing that. Because the wickedness that they ended up doing in the end, these people ended up sac um, <laughs> sacrificing Jesus, crucifying him on the cross their end was worse because they thought that there was something in themselves that made them valuable to God, that they were honoring God in their own flesh, and that's not the case. If you want to turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2 and... We're going to start in verse 16. It says, Knowing 
that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And this is kind of what... Now, I, I miss, I didn't, I stopped in the story of Hezekiah and he did change. He repented again. He didn't end his life in rebellion against God. And that's a, that's a good thing. But we're just looking at that as an example of even a righteous person, a godly person, a person who is serving God throughout their life, if we can get lifted up in our own pride, can fall and receive this punishment or, or this condemnation before God and end up in a bad state if we think that our righteousness is within ourselves. And this is what he is saying here in, in Galatians chapter 2 as all, is that a man is not justified by the works of the law. The things that I do in my flesh are not going to gain my salvation. It's only my faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 17 says, But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners. Is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law am dead to the law, but that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. But that verse, like verse 17 through 19, is describing us as a saved believer being found sinners, turning back to the sin that Christ saved us from. Is there any blame for, to Christ for us falling? Is there any, is therefore Christ the minister of sin when I fall and turn it away from God? And it says, God forbid, that's not him, that's you. It says, for if I build again the things which I destroyed, if I turn back to the life of sin that I had turned away from when I turned to God, I make myself a transgressor. It's not Christ. There's nothing honoring to Christ in that. I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to be dead to that sin. I, I am crucified with Christ. My flesh that I'm living in is supposed to be crucified. And when I live, I'm supposed to be living in Christ through his strength, not depending on my own strength to maintain this flesh living for him. I'm going to go back to Matthew 12 for a moment to finish this off. Um, if we look right down at the end of the chapter, verse 50, he says, For whosoever 
shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven. Now, the question is, is what is he talking about? What is the will of his Father which is in heaven? I'm sure I could have turned to any variety of verses to get that definition, but John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus is answering this other, maybe the same crowd, who knows, but it says, Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he has sent. That is what the will of God is. That is what the work that he wants us to do. The will of God is that we believe on him whom he has sent. That's Jesus. He that's all he really wants from us. It's not a list of things that I need to fix in my life. It's a, do you believe in the one that was sent? And that's the whole answer. That's the end of the argument. It's not, have I, have you stopped doing this? Have you stopped doing that? Have you, are, have, are you going to church and have you checked off these boxes? It's, it's have you believed in Jesus Christ? When we go back to verse 48, it says, But he answered and said unto him that told him, told him that his mother and brothers were outside and wanted to see him. He says, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And his answer, and he points at his disciples, the, the people that are in front of him, and he says, Behold, my mother and brethren, for whosoever shall do the will. It's whosoever. There, Jesus is not trying to put down his physical, earthly family. He's just trying to express a bigger truth here. He's trying to explain to them that it's not your genealogy that's going to save you. Being a Jew is not enough. Following the law is not enough. You need, it's whosoever is going to do what God is asking. And that is who is going to receive salvation. And we're going to end with, um, in Romans chapter 9 here. Romans chapter 9, it's going to start at the beginning here. It says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is overall glad, blessed, God-blessed forever. Amen. He's saying that Israel, the Jews, 
are who Christ came to. Those are the people who the promise was given to. And Paul is part of that group. And he says, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow. I wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen. And that's what Jesus is talking about. His, his family, and he just made that tie to his immediate family. But the Jews saw themselves as God's chosen people. It was, and that's a, it was a true statement. But they felt like they were guaranteed salvation. It's like there was, they didn't, they didn't need Jesus. They thought they had it within themselves, the law that was given to them, all the things, the promises that were handed to their fathers were being passed on to them and that they were inheriting this salvation. Verse 6 says, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. In other words, they're not all going to receive salvation just because they were born into that family. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh these are not the children of God, but the children of the promises are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise at this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. There's more to it than just the promise to the people. And I'm going to skip toward the end of the chapter to verse 23. It says, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. It wasn't just the Jews that received the fulfillment of that promise of salvation. As he saith also in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which were not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. What a blessing for us that we get to be called the children of the living God because of faith in Christ. And those who were given those promises who reject Christ don't necessarily receive that salvation. And I'm just going to finish with the gospel or with the message of salvation in Romans 10. Verse 8 says, But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. 
For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What a blessing to have to not depend on my ability to please God, to obey God in the flesh in following all these rules that are laid out because I know I can't do it. I know on my own strength I can't do it. And God knew that in my own strength that I wouldn't be able to do it. And he gave us a way that all of his righteousness gets applied to us through simply believing who Christ was, who Jesus was, what he did on that cross for our sins. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him should not be ashamed, but for whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Lord, I'm just so thankful that salvation doesn't depend on me and my strength, my abilities, that it is only in simply believing that I can't do it, that it is not up to me, but that Christ has accomplished that on my behalf, Lord, and I thank you for that. And I pray that you would help us to understand you, understand your love and your word. We just thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen.